You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Hello, and welcome to the USIP Twitter space. I'm Scott Worden, the Director for Afghanistan and Central Asia at the U.S. Institute of Peace. USIP is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute that is founded by the U.S. Congress and dedicated to informing both the policy and practice of peaceful conflict resolution around the world. Let me begin with a few housekeeping notes as people join us. The conversation is being recorded, and if you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter, and we will also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available on our website, usip.org. Also on other major podcast platforms. We may use the recording for other platforms as well. We invite you to submit questions for our discussion as you listen. If you would like to submit a question, the best way is to send a direct message to IP. You can also reply in the thread for this space or tweet your question with the hashtag, hashtag AfghanistanUSIP. We will be moderating speaker access to keep the conversation flowing. So asking questions via direct message or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. So let's get started. The reason for this event is that yesterday marked the one year anniversary of the foreign troop departure from Afghanistan. This capped a chaotic evacuation of many of our Afghan partners, but of course many also are left behind and those that, that weren't affiliated with the US. So it's a, it's a sobering moment to reflect on a year of Taliban rule. I note that Afghanistan, in addition to being the so-called graveyard of empires, is the graveyard of predictions. And many people were surprised by both the suddenness of the government collapse uh, in the last weeks or the first weeks of August, and also the strength of the Taliban one year on. I think that well, we had a few fluid situation in the months uh, preceding the Taliban takeover. But if that was wet concrete that maybe could be molded or shaped in big ways, now it is significantly hardened and it will be only a chipping away that changes policies and practices. And there is much to change. The U.S. intervention uh, failed to achieve nearly all of its objectives. Uh, the, the democratic system is, is gone, um, but also major reforms in terms of equal rights, most prominently women's rights, uh, a platform to protect against terrorism to the region and to the homeland. All of that is jeopardized by Taliban rule. So this discussion is really about looking back over the past year to do some stock taking. Uh, what has developed? What have we learned about Taliban rule? What are the trend lines going forward? We'll stop short of predictions, given what I said about the past ones. And we're going to cover with our USIP experts several key areas. This includes the deteriorating economy, the humanitarian crisis, risks of terrorism, uh, how the Taliban are transitioning to governance or, or not, and also the conditions facing women, girls, and youth. Uh, in Afghanistan. To discuss this, we have a distinguished group of experts who are residents at USIP. They've written their reflections on these different aspects of the Taliban's rule, which are available on USIP's website on the Afghanistan page. I also note that we published yesterday a comprehensive look at the missed opportunities over the last 20 years to achieve a political settlement. This is written by Steve Brooking, who spent a long time with the UN on their negotiating team, and that is available on USIP's Afghanistan page as well. So let's now talk through some of the key developments of the past year. 
Let me start with the most maybe dramatic or news-breaking event to come from Afghanistan in the last couple of months, which is the drone strike that killed al-Qaeda leader Ayman Zawahiri in an upscale neighborhood of downtown Kabul. He was reportedly a guest there of the Haqqanis, uh, a major component of the Taliban, and uh, controlling the Ministry of Interior. So quite a high level of official engagement with the most senior al-Qaeda terrorists. This raises major questions about whether the Taliban are committed at all to the terms of the U.S.-Taliban agreement that was signed in February of 2019, and also how quickly Afghanistan might again become a base for transnational terrorism. Let me turn to Asfan Yarmir, who's a senior expert on South Asia for USIP. He's focused his research on terrorism in the region and has tracked the ebb and flow of regional terrorist groups from well before the Taliban's takeover. So, Asfan Yar, can you put into context what the terrorism risk to the U.S. and to the region was before the Taliban took over? Now, what does it look like one year after their rule? And how does the Zawahiri strike uh, and the fact of his presence in Kabul maybe change the picture for the future? Thank you, Scott, uh, for the opportunity and uh, for, for convening this discussion. Um, so under the Taliban, uh, there are a range of terror threats which continue to fester. Uh, and in many ways, uh, they are holding on to the trajectory uh, that they had prior to the Taliban's takeover. So most of these threats are not new. They've been around for a while, but they certainly seem to have uh, grown and increased in, in certain respects. And the way I divide up the threat landscape is uh, that I, I think there are two distinct groupings. The first significant grouping is of threats that are aligned with the Taliban, that are friendly to the Taliban. And this includes uh, the likes of Al-Qaeda, uh, the anti-Pakistan group TTP, China-focused threats um, in, in the Turkestan Islamic Party. Uh, there are uh, several Central Asian uh, jihadist groups uh, currently based in, in Afghanistan, which are friendly to the Taliban. And then on the other hand, there are these these groupings which are more adversarial to the Taliban, which oppose the Taliban's um, rule of Afghanistan. And the main grouping in that category is uh, ISIS or Islamic State's Khorasan province, also referred to as uh, ISIS-K. Let me, uh, you know, take the case of uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, which certainly is in, in news, as you note, due to the drone strike against Al-Qaeda leader. Uh, Al-Qaeda's core and its affiliate have long been present in the Afghanistan-Pakistan region. And at the time of the U.S. withdrawal, President Biden at one point said that, you know, Al-Qaeda has gone from Afghanistan. Um, that was clearly not the case. Uh, Al-Qaeda chief uh, Zawahiri was found uh, in the middle of Kabul uh, in a compound uh, that has, it's now been reported, uh, was linked to uh, the interior minister of, uh, you know, of the, of the Taliban government, Siraj Ghani. Uh, and to my mind, it really shows enduring Taliban support for Al-Qaeda uh, and interest in protecting this organization. But at the same time, um, you know, Al-Qaeda's own interest as well to be based in Afghanistan, to use Afghanistan as the nerve center of its uh, global affiliate network. Uh, at the same time, I think it's important to note that we have no indication that Al-Qaeda is actually constituting the capability for external attacks. It can do that in the future. But for now, there are no indications, um, and and I think that's a, that's an important uh, data point. Quickly on ISIS K, ISIS K, uh, and the Taliban have been fighting. Um, the Taliban have undertaken a pretty substantial crackdown against this group. Yet uh, ISIS K has been able to maintain its uh, violence. Uh, this the last three weeks, for example, 
uh, saw some of the highest uh, civilian casualties in a one-month period since uh, August 15th, 2021. Uh, so ISIS-K's violence is significant, and what the troubling trend is that they're starting to uh, undertake violence in Afghanistan's uh, neighboring countries uh, as well. Uh, on, the, on the side of regional groupings, uh, the TTP is of significant concern. Uh, it has <coughs> um, de facto political asylum uh, in Afghanistan, uh, and it is looking uh, extremely threatening uh, and posing a very significant threat to Pakistan. Um, so, all in all, I, I would say the terror picture is a troubling one. Uh, and at the one year mark of the Taliban's rule, I think we have reason to be more concerned, not less, on the, on the account of terrorism and counterterrorism. Thanks, Asmanyar. Let me ask a follow-up question. You know, the, the essence of the, of the U.S. agreement with the Taliban that was signed and, and some of their statements afterwards is that Afghan soil will not be used for plotting attacks or launching attacks on others. And they, they issued a similar statement at a regional conference in Uzbekistan <laughs> relating to the region. Um, you know, we see maybe a, a fine point that the Taliban want to maintain that, that having al-Qaeda members or other terrorist members on their soil is not the same thing as plotting an attack. Um, do you think that that is an important distinction? Is it duplicitous? I mean, how should we be interpreting the Taliban's intent when it comes to the obvious hosting of some of these groups? I think this is uh, an important point, uh, and we hear this from some Taliban inter interlocutors as well, that, uh, that what we have really committed to is restraining these groups, not uh, demobilizing them or even expelling them. Uh, the problem, however, is that a lot of the groups uh, that remain in Afghanistan are, uh, do not appear restrained. Uh, so Al-Qaeda, I mean, take Al-Qaeda, for, for instance, Iman al-Zawahiri, uh, from his safety in Kabul, was actually instigating uh, uh, violence and attacks by, by way of uh, video messages. He had put out uh, several messages against India uh, during his time in, in Kabul. Uh, so in that sense, he was engaged in, uh, in, you know, in, in operational affairs. Then there's the TDP. The TDP continues to uh, train uh, its people uh, on Afghan soil. Uh, they have uh, large camps. They have total freedom of movement. So, uh, you know, I, I think the Taliban position that they are restraining um, is uh, is not a credible one. Um, and, uh, you know, even the minimal uh, guarantees that they have offered to the United States government and other countries, uh, my, my assessment is that they're not coming, coming through on, on those as well. Thanks. That's an important point. Let me turn now to the, the other point that's maybe most urgent concern, which is which is women's rights. Uh, in March, very dramatically, the Taliban reversed themselves when they met several ministers had committed to allowing girls to go to school through high school. Uh, they were then pulled back uh, from attending on the morning of the first day of classes. Uh, this is this is symbolic of a whole range of freedoms for women, but also for other groups, for minorities, for members of the former republic that the Taliban have instituted since they took power. Uh, Belkis Amadi is a senior program officer at USIP. She has decades of experience as a human rights defender and as a women's rights advocate, both from her native Afghanistan on the ground as well as here in Washington. Uh, Belkis, let me turn to you and, and ask what have we learned from a year of Taliban rules that relates to women's rights and human rights? Uh, as people have asked repeatedly, have the Taliban changed? What do you think? Uh, but more than that, do you expect to see uh, the same atrocities that occurred in the 90s, which involved killing obese and so forth, to occur in the future? How do you interpret the trends and what has happened over the past year? Thank you, Scott. Um, 
What we have seen in the past year is an erosion of women's rights, uh, the right of women and girls uh, to education, employment, access to justice, and other fundamental rights. Uh, we, we see that women have been um, stripped of their right to constitution, uh, the constitutional rights that guaranteed women's um, uh, rights. Uh, other institutions and machinery and mechanisms that were put in place uh, by the former uh, by the Republic, as well as uh, civil society, uh, participation and support was, uh, eliminate, uh, for example, commissions to eliminate violence against women. There, were, uh, there was an action plan for the implementation of the UN Security Council Resolution 1325 that is on women, peace and security. And overall, the Ministry of Women's Affairs that was uh, considers, uh, considered a one-stop shop uh, for women and women-related policies and issues, the elimination um, of the Independent Human Rights Commission and all its branches throughout the country. So that's what we are seeing. Uh, but to be specific, we see that more than um, what well, millions of girls are out of school now. We see uh, that majority of the 68,000 women teachers and university lecturers are not able to teach the current and future generation of uh, Afghans. Um, so what it means is Taliban's rule means an emboldened patriarchal norms. Uh, we see uh, and hear many, many countless cases of women committing suicide, depression, anxiety, fear, uh, and a diminished uh, self-confidence. Um, uh, we also see resentment toward men. <laughs> we see child marriage, false marriage, um, and also in a significant increase in domestic and social violence against women. Uh, not to even mention the economic dependency because Taliban are not allowing women to earn an income and uh, um, take part in their family's um, well-being and so on. Um, so are we going to see atrocities? I say we are already seeing atrocities being committed by Taliban at different levels in different parts of the country. Um, that is worrisome. I think if something is not done now, we are going to witness further uh, crisis in Afghanistan related to humanitarian as well as man-made, by man-made, I mean Taliban-made crisis in Afghanistan. Uh, I'll, I'll stop here, but we'll come back um, later, Scott. Thank you. Thanks. I want to go to the humanitarian issues next, but, but let me just ask as well a follow-up question. You know, the Taliban's justification for their policies on, on women and their policies generally is it's in accordance with Islam. And also they will say it's in accordance with Afghan culture and it's, it's an Afghan way of living. What is your response to that? Well, Afghanistan is not the only Muslim country in the world. <laughs> Look around, there are billions of uh, Muslims um, all over and they are not subjected to the type of treatment, uh, especially women and girls are not subjected to the type of treatment that Afghans are faced with by the Taliban. So their uh, justification that what they are doing is pure Islam is baseless. Uh, 
that has no base in Sharia. Let's come to uh, Afghan traditions and customs and so on. So prior to August of last year, there were Afghans living in that land called Afghanistan. They were okay with sending their girls to school. Mm -hmm. They were also okay with women going to work and uh, have freedom of movement. So I, I, I fail to understand which Afghan customs and traditions they're referring to. Afghans in the past um, have donated their own properties and lands in the most remote areas of Afghanistan so that the government and the communities could build schools for girls and boys. Those to me are Afghans who are, uh, uh, who are symbols of Afghan uh, culture and traditions, not Taliban who majority of them have not lived with Afghans, have not lived in the cities and rural areas or with their families. And they are coming up with their own definition and interpretation of what Afghan cultures is and what Afghan uh, Islamic Sharia is. Just like their justification in the name of Sharia that has no base, their justification and reasoning that what they're doing is based on Afghan culture has no base to my knowledge. Thank you. Thank you. As you mentioned, unfortunately, there are, there are intersecting crises that are facing Afghanistan. It's not just human rights and, and social policies. It's a humanitarian crisis where the fundamental lack of food, the lack of basic health care, deterioration in both uh, since the Taliban took over are affecting millions of the population. Uh, and, and this is intertwined with an economic collapse. And I want to turn to Bill Byrd, who is a senior expert on economics in Afghanistan. He served in the past as the head of the World Bank office in Kabul. Uh, Bill, you've written extensively about how the multiple shocks of ending foreign aid, of frozen bank assets, central bank assets, as well as sanctions, have crippled the economy. And this leads, leads to a cash crisis. Um, people can't get money to pay for food as well as not earn it. Can you unpack for us how the economy and the humanitarian crisis are interrelated and what is the Afghan economy looking like right now as it relates to providing basic services for the Afghan people? Thank you, Scott. There's something pretty close to a perfect storm going on. But first, and I don't need to spend much time on the dire economic and humanitarian situation, but I would just like to emphasize, because I think there's some misunderstanding around, the key shock, the key economic shock was the abrupt cutoff of aid uh, to, to the country, which was equivalent to about 40% of GDP. No country in the world could have absorbed that kind of shock. And indeed, the Afghan economy was in free fall for several months with estimated 30% uh, decline in, uh, in GDP. Now, there are signs of the Afghan economy adjusting to uh, the new reality, uh, as one would expect, but obviously just a start, that trade uh, is beginning to adjust, exports may be on track to double, imports decline sharply uh, because uh, people don't have money to pay for imports. Uh, the foreign exchange rate after some, uh, some uh, uh, volatility and decline is stabilized and is about the same as it was in the finance before the, the Taliban takeover. Uh, so there are signs of an adjustment to a new economic reality. And the Taliban economic management during the past year actually has had some positive features, uh, including 
revenue collection, which has held up much better than certainly I or, or most others expected, even despite the declining economy, which normally would have resulted in a, a decline in revenue. Uh, there are improved trade facilitation, reduction of corruption on uh, checkpoints and borders. And basically, the fact that the major fighting has stopped uh, uh, has improved security in much of the country for economic actors. So the country is emerging with a lower level economic equilibrium at the moment, but it's big losses in incomes, uh, pushing back, basically lost the last 15 years of gains in, in average per capita income, and the prospects are for low economic growth, so no real recovery. And moreover, what, what this new incipient equilibrium uh, involves is that the uh, many people, uh, majority of Afghans, uh, are probably below the subsistence level. So I've called it in, in my publications a famine equilibrium to bring this uh, point across, that there's no, that there is an economic equilibrium, but it leaves many people without uh, money to buy uh, basic food and other basic needs. And moreover, what it also means is this equilibrium, such as it is, is precarious and depends on something like two to three billion dollars of humanitarian aid per year. Now, people were thought uh, bulleted in Dodge last uh, winter and that there was indeed an enormous response of humanitarian aid. Uh, I don't think it was necessarily that good a winner for most Afghan, and uh, I would expect that excess mortality from malnutrition, disease, etc., was quite high. But the coming winter could become yet another crisis point, and on top of everything else, there's a continuing drought. And uh, not to be too alarmist, but if things get worse, large outflows of Afghan people to other countries may be the only alternative uh, to mass deaths. Thanks again. A sobering picture. What would you say? I mean, with winter looming, as you as you noted, uh, and increased pressure on on the humanitarian situation. I mean, what would be the the top one or two steps that would be needed to more normalize the economy? Uh, and I'll put a, an assumption that you can disagree with, but given what we heard about their their human rights situation and their terrorism situation, I, I certainly don't expect foreign aid. Uh, to the Taliban to be restarting, which was largely Western driven. So if you don't have the aid replaced, how do you get the economy to be more than a famine level of equilibrium? Well, one thing that I think at least for the next year has, has to be maintained is the, the current level of humanitarian aid. Uh, I'm a development person and I have a bias in favor of, of development, which then leads to economic growth. But this situation is, is very dire. Uh, and I do think there needs to be some pressure and encouragement on neighboring countries that in case the situation gets worse, they won't be the bottleneck, which then results in people starving at the border. So those are some very basic minimums. Uh, the U.S. has gone about as far as it can in the current situation in relaxing sanctions. And basically, uh, the problem now is much more that international banks and other international actors simply don't want to. It's too risky for them to invest in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban have to also play a role. As I mentioned, they have actually done some good things on economic management, uh, but they, they uh, need to maybe in cooperation with friendly countries improve in the areas they're not doing very well. One very obvious and immediate signal that could be given would be to appoint 
uh, non, uh, non-political professional uh, experienced technocrats to head the central bank, which in any case is supposed to be autonomous under Afghan law. And that would, I think, send a signal that would be helpful both in terms of uh, uh, financial relations, uh, anti-money laundering, and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, potentially making use of some of the reserves, which actually are, as I mentioned, are not the main problem. The main problem is the aid cutoff. So, and I think some countries, perhaps the friendly countries who supported the Taliban in the past could at least provide that amount of money that they were providing for the Taliban insurgency uh, to the Taliban to, to ease some of their financial constraints. And the Taliban have to publish their budget. Uh, it's ridiculous to, to, to boast about collecting revenue and then providing no visibility to anyone about how that money is being spent. So there are some things. So the bottom line is continue humanitarian aid, try to do some basic needs in addition, but uh, in, in many respects, the ball is in the Taliban court. We can debate about how realistic it is, but frankly, the central banking is not one of the ideological fault lines, really, and so they should really be able to do more on their side. Thanks. So let's turn to the Taliban. Uh, how are they governing? What is their approach to governance, apart from it shall be in accordance with Sharia? I think one of the confounding things about Taliban rule so far is trying to understand their vision as it goes beyond a, quote, Islamic system. Uh, the Taliban have so far resisted international calls, domestic calls for greater political inclusion. They have, interestingly, not sought to create a new constitution yet. Uh, they've issued contradictory announcements about key policies, not just the girls' education that we talked about. Um, and, and you know, you, you wonder whether this was, a, in some ways, an unanticipated complete victory for them. Uh, it seems like they don't have a plan for how they want to run the country, uh, apart from some ideological touchstones. Let me turn to Andrew Watkins, who's a USIP senior expert that has tracked closely the different com- competitions for power among Taliban factions, as well as other political factions in Afghanistan. Uh, Andrew, let me just ask, based on their first year in office, what would you say is the Taliban's approach to governance? And also, who decides what that approach is? Thanks, Scott. Uh, and, and thanks to everyone for such great uh, comments and insights so far. Uh, the short answer about the Taliban's approach to governance is that they themselves as a movement are still trying to sort it out uh, amongst themselves. In, in many ways, if we have to define Taliban governance with just a single word, uh, it, I think it's reactive. And I'll come back to that thought. I want to identify a few trends that may have felt obvious at the time, uh, but are worth looking back on with this year in review. The first trend in Taliban governance was how quickly and automatically they plugged their leadership, their most senior figures, into the official roles of the state. Uh, They announced their interim cabinet. Uh, At the time, it felt like it was taking them forever, but it was really only three weeks after their sudden takeover of the country. And they had announced a a formal uh, set of ministers and and a governing body. this wasn't a given uh, how much of the Republic's administrative structure the Taliban simply left standing and stepped into almost automatically. Uh, The biggest trend of this interim cabinet, which they labeled as interim, but of course have still maintained, and it seems they may do so indefinitely. The biggest trend and pattern was how many ministers that were appointed had been heads of similar commissions uh, during their insurgency, 
or who had served in similar roles at the cabinet level during the emirate of the 1990s. Um, yes, there were capacity gaps in a technocratic and bureaucratic sense, but what the Taliban showed with these quick appointments was an appreciation for the power of the state, which is very different from the attitude of the Taliban movement and uh, a lot of rejection of the very idea of state power during their 1990s emirate. Um, the second trend is the emir, uh, Haibatullah Akhundzada's reassertion of his own power, what his role as the emir is. You asked who is deciding what Taliban governance looks like. While that changes every day and nothing, as you say, is set down in writing, in a constitution or a foundational document, uh, the role of the emir is evolving in a really new and distinct way since their takeover. In theory, the emir has always been this movement's supreme leader, uh, supreme obedience, supreme discipline. But in practice, through much of the last two decades, Taliban field commanders and their fighters uh, out in the countryside held a lot of unspoken leverage. The leadership, which was sitting in, in hiding and sanctuary in Pakistan, they had to give a lot of their movement uh, a long leash, so to speak. There was a lot of autonomy to conduct their own affairs, and it was a rare moment when the emir uh, challenged consensus or majority rule or made controversial leadership decisions. We still see the residual effect of this today in how much regional variation there is in Taliban policy and behavior. You see this in how they interact with foreign aid agencies, especially how in different parts of the country they handle social restrictions on women and girls most of all. But in March this year, Afghans and the world began to take notice of something that was brewing in Kandahar. The emir was beginning to assert his authority and a right to review any of the affairs of the Taliban's new state, anything that caught his attention. Uh, his last minute reversal of the decision on girls' secondary school has, has been well documented elsewhere. I just wanna note that the emir's review authority and his veto of decisions being made at the cabinet level is taking place increasingly more often and on a wider variety of the affairs of the state. To the point that diplomats based in Kabul or who cover Afghanistan are beginning to refer to a Kandaharization of the Taliban's still evolving government. One thing to note is that even though there is a growing divide uh, between two dueling centers of power, it seems, uh, the, the formal ministries in Kabul and circles of influence around the Emir in Kandahar, this is not the kind of divide that is likely to result in an open split in the Taliban. We're not seeing a disintegration of this movement. If anything, the actions and the trends of the Emir and the way that the movement are responding seems to double down on their ideology of obedience and the priority that they've placed for years on their own internal cohesion. Another key point is that none of this dysfunction fundamentally challenges many of the ways the Taliban operates. One thing that all Taliban, even the most supposedly moderate leaders agree on, is they and they alone have a right to rule over Afghanistan. They have a moral and a political legitimacy complex. Like Belkis mentioned, that even extends to the right to define what interpretations of Islamic law or cultural values should apply to all Afghans. 
there is wide agreement in the Taliban on moving towards an authoritarian system where they rule without any real challenges uh, that has implications for inclusion of non-Taliban Afghan voices. Now, they have tolerated some very limited dissent and, and more open conversation, even in legacy media outlets from the time of the Republic, more so than many of us have imagined. But we also need to look at the trend lines and acknowledge that over time, that limited space could erode. And if we compare the Taliban system to other authoritarian rule around the world, over time, the right to speak often does erode. Perhaps I'll close on, on the final point that most of what the Taliban is doing in governance, as I said in the opening, is reactive. Other than things that they were already comfortable doing and had a system for as an insurgency, uh, such as handling security, their system of Sharia-based courts, and their modalities of taxation, they still lack a detailed agenda or even a vision for what their state should be. It's unclear where their internal debate on these big questions is going, but it is clear that they don't care much to include other Afghans in it. So let me follow, thanks for that. Let me follow up just on that last point uh, briefly, if you would. You know, so where do you see possible challenges to their rule coming from? I mean, it's an interesting, to me, paradox between their exclusive uh, minority control of the government, their policies that alienate large sectors of Afghan society, uh, and yet their relative uh, freedom to do what they want. Uh, how do you see, what, what would you say are, are areas that, if you were the Taliban, you'd watch out for uh, as, as far as dissent uh, to their rule coming up? Yeah, I think at this point, the, the Taliban have already broadcast a number of signals of who they may view as potential threats and challenges, but also who they feel like it's important to listen to who worthwhile constituencies are in their eyes among Afghans. It's, it's notable, it's really notable that the Taliban have invested as much as they have in a commission to bring back former uh, senior figures from the Islamic Republic, including a number of people who had credible accusations of, of massive corruption and, and malpractice during their time in office in the Republic for a movement that's supposed to be based uh, on purifying the Afghan state from corruption, there's a lot going on there in who the Taliban believes might bestow legitimacy to their state. We also need to look at the two large gatherings they've convened, which uh, before they gave them formal titles, many people assumed were taking shape as loya jirgas. Um, but today, the fact that most attendees of these gatherings, one in Kabul in July and the other a month later in Kandahar, uh, were made up largely of ulama from around the country, many of whom it appears have been handpicked by Taliban officials. It suggests that the Taliban really do want to inject some substance into the idea that they are a state that is going to be run and established on the advice of the clerical class. Now, they're going to choose and pick which of the clerical class in Afghanistan they listen to, but it does give you a hint of what they might think going forward. It's also worth noting that in both of those gatherings, there have been a lot of private sector and business leaders who still remain in Afghanistan who've been engaged. Taliban's engagement with people who make money is going to be something to watch for sure. Thanks for that. So we've set the table 
with a number of problems, all the challenges that, that Afghanistan is facing. Of course, the U.S. has enduring interests in Afghanistan. And as I mentioned at the outset, most, if not all of them, were, were set back or totally derailed by the Taliban takeover. So with the difficult question of, of how does the last year affect U.S. policy and interest, but also what are possible tools that the U.S. can uh, employ to change the situation to protect our interests. I'm going to turn to Kate Bateman. She's a senior expert working at USIP, but coming most immediately from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction, CIGAR's Lessons Learned Report. So Kate's looked into this uh, U.S. policies from a number of angles over a long period of time. And I want to ask you, Kate, how do you assess, uh, what do you assess the core U.S. goals to be in Afghanistan at this point? And what have we learned in the past year about the leverage that we still have to achieve them? Yeah, thank you, Scott, and th thanks for the opportunity. Um, the United States' main goals in Afghanistan today are, are threefold, I would say. Um, one is, of course, counterterrorism, which was the core goal during the 20-year intervention um, to ensure that terrorist groups operating in Afghanistan don't threaten the United States or our allies. Um, and two, we want to see a peaceful state that respects the rights of Afghans, um, particularly women, girls, and minorities. Um, and both those goals have been consistent in guiding U.S. policy since 2001. Um, but now with the Taliban in power, um, both of them are farther out of reach, as my colleagues have, have just explained. Um, and maybe I think that maybe the largest shift in the U.S. focus, though, um, since one year ago is because of the severity of the humanitarian and economic crisis. You know, the, a, a major goal now for the U.S. is to prevent starvation, um, I mean, to prevent a mass casualty event and address the ongoing crisis, um, which, which Bill went into more detail on. Um, but to your second question, Scott, you know, what has the past year shown us U.S. leverage to achieve those goals? Um, the short answer is that the U.S. and its like-minded partners have um, precious little leverage within government. I mean, there seems to be a near total lack of alignment between what the U.S. wants to see from the Taliban and what the Taliban want to see from the U.S. Um, on the Taliban side, they want diplomatic recognition, sanctions relief, and unfreezing the central bank assets. And all of these are politically difficult for the U.S. to employ. Um, and just as importantly, though, the Taliban has not has not shown itself willing to do what's necessary to get any of these concessions from the U.S. and our partners. Um, the U.S. and other donors, uh, many as many argue, need to maintain humanitarian aid without conditions. So we shouldn't factor that into considerations about how to influence the Taliban. Um, but as for development aid. Um, that's another lever where initially a year ago, I think the U.S. hoped we might have some leverage. And, and that's where, you know, there was some uncertainty in terms of, you know, will the Taliban govern in a way that's, um, uh, that's responsive to that financial incentive. Um, but tragically, they've shown themselves to be prioritizing their narrow vision of Islamic governance, and they've been focused on internal cohesion, consolidating power, as Andrew has argued, and they've been unwilling to meet international expectations of responsible governance, which might have won them desperately needed financial assistance. And the March decision to refuse to reopen girls' secondary schools is the biggest exhibit of that. Um, and this is my last point is here's, I think, where the connection between Taliban governance and leverage is so important that um, U.S. and international leverage with the Taliban depends in large part on the direction of the movement and its thinking and its leadership. And, um, and you know, this is where Andrew Watkins and others work on understanding Taliban behavior and power structures is so important. 
Um, because I think even if the trend lines are very worrying right now, and they suggest that the U.S. has less space than one year ago to advance our goals, um, I, I think that we still do need to maintain some level of engagement and stay open to possibilities um, or, or potential openings for influence um, and not, you know, keep in mind that there, there will still be some fluidity and, and hopefully we will have some greater space um, to engage and influence the situation on the ground. Then Let me ask a, a broadening question. You know, the decision to pull out U.S. troops uh, last year was framed by the administration in part as uh, a pivot to new strategic challenges. Obviously, there's competition with China. That was before the, the Ukraine war broke out. But nonetheless, uh, we were increasingly concerned about uh, Russian policies and behaviors. I mean, do you see the Afghanistan versus greater strategic competition as a choice, an either or, or do you see that as related to each other? Um, I don't. I think it's. Um, I think it's. It's a great question. Um, I think that the U.S. clearly, the Biden administration's administration's decision does, um, you know, telegraphed it, it signaled that the U.S. had determined that our our interests in Afghanistan were. Uh, not, you know, that the investment that we had there was not commensurate with um, uh, with our interests. And, you know, people can, we can argue about that. And I think the, the Zawahiri strike, um, which Asfandir so, you know, well um, explained, does demonstrate that we have these ongoing counterterrorism concerns in the region. And um, and we, we have to remain uh, vigilant um, about those and stay engaged. Um, however, the I think that the withdrawal was also a, a, a signal of U.S. policy uh, makers determining that um, you know that our investments in in reconstruction and so on uh, you know were were fragile were um, they were difficult to sustain and um, and I think there's going and it's a signal that we're not able to make that kind of investment in every country in the world where um, where it's arguably needed. Um, for the of that country, uh, but there needs to be a, a balancing of of U.S. investments that pr is proportionate to you know our interests around the world. But I think that we do we can do both, of course, in terms of remaining engaged in um, in states like Afghanistan, trying to do um, peace building work and work on um, on countering violent extremism, um, and that's that's also fundamental to our long term interests in the country and the region. Thanks. The, the mentioning of the need for strategic choices, limited resources, multiple uh, world hotspots, as well as the strategic picture brings up uh, the regional dynamics. And so clearly with the withdrawal of U.S. troops and, and also with the takeover by the Taliban, the loss of a, of a partner in the U.S. government in NATO allies and European allies and so forth, uh, influence has shifted dramatically from the U.S. and the West to Afghanistan's neighbors and, let's say, the East, uh, as far as the, the political, economic, security fate of the country. So I want to ask panelists, maybe starting with you, Asfandiar, uh, what does the regional picture look like? How big of a threat does Afghanistan, Taliban rule, potential instability pose to its neighbors? Uh, are regional actors, do they have a different view or outlook on what's needed in Afghanistan from maybe the U.S. and the West? 
And how do you see their opportunities to influence the behavior of the Taliban, uh, given what we've already described as limited U.S. leverage? Sure. Um, so, um, you know, after August, the region um, wanted the Taliban to succeed. Uh, I think uh, most in the region welcomed uh, the U.S. departure uh, for different reasons. Um, and that drove them to uh, to want the Taliban to stabilize the situation. And, uh, you know, on a relatively short order, start behaving more normally. Uh, so we have seen a lot of engagement uh, between various regional actors and the Taliban. The Chinese have uh, engaged the Taliban most extensively. There's some really interesting uh, data available on that, which shows that the Taliban have taken uh, a lot of trips uh, to China. Uh, the Russians have been engaging. Um, so on, on surface, there is still positivity. Uh, but the Taliban's choices uh, have uh, have started showing some some real disappointment across uh, all major regional capitals, uh, and my read is that uh, that disappointment is deepening, uh, and this sense of disappointment comes through most clearly in the in the case of uh, Pakistan, which has long been the Taliban's most important uh, supporter, uh, political backer. Uh, Pakistan did. Uh, in my view, everything it could to make sure that the, that the Taliban returned to power. Uh, and I think their disappointment stems from uh, several different, uh, uh, for several different reasons. One is that uh, they are unhappy with the Taliban failing to convince the Russians and the Chinese to recognize them. Uh, the second problem seems to be the Taliban's position on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border, what is called the Duran Line. I think the Pakistani military expectation was that the Taliban would be so beholden to them that, of course, they would accept this border, which has long been contested as, as fait accompli. The Taliban haven't, um, haven't done that. They've been challenging this border. And then finally, and this is something I mentioned earlier as well, the Taliban's support for the anti-Pakistan, Tariq Taliban, uh, Pakistan TDP, uh, I think that's uh, really starting to bother uh, the Pakistanis. And we have signs of uh, tensions between the two sides. In April, Pakistan conducted airstrikes um, in, in Afghanistan. And then more recently, after the Zawahiri strike, the Taliban, instead of training their guns against the United States, they have uh, um, they've been criticizing at times implicitly and at other times explicitly Pakistan for allowing the, the United States to use its airspace uh, for the, the drone operation that, that took out al-Qaeda chief Ayman al-Zawahiri. Uh, then there are, uh, you know, some tensions below the surface, you know, with the, with the Chinese and the Russians as well. Uh, as I noted, their public positions are supportive, but the, the Chinese are concerned that the Taliban do not have the ingredients um, in order uh, to uh, to stabilize uh, the country. And the Russians seem to have concerns about inclusion. Uh, they've also spoken uh, about uh, the growing threat of ISIS. Some of the most aggressive estimates on where the ISIS threat is at and where it's likely to go, uh, those are coming from, from the Russians. Uh, I think the Iranian position is also similarly ambivalent. Thanks for that. For those that have joined in midstream, this is the discussion of the first year of Taliban rule with different experts from USIP's Afghanistan team. Let me remind everyone that you can join the conversation and ask questions by sending a direct message to at USIP or to reply in the thread of this space or tweet your question with the hashtag, hashtag AfghanistanUSIP. Um, I want to turn now 
first on the regional question to Bill Byrd, because I think one of the opportunities, uh, which has long been unrealized uh, for the region, is in the form of economics and trade. So I'm curious what your view is on regional attitudes and, and cooperation when it comes to the economic environment. Um, but also we have a question that has come up in chat about uh, the reserves. And maybe if you could briefly explain uh, what is the latest on those reserves and why would that not be directly related to providing humanitarian needs? Sure, thank you. Uh, both good questions. Uh, quickly on the regional side, uh, I think there's a reason that the potential hasn't been realized, and it relates both to physical barriers. I mean, Afghanistan is not the natural place to transfer, I don't know, containers from Moscow to Delhi or something like that. Uh, the seaborne trade was discovered starting in 1492, and the economics are such that uh, uh, quite a, it, it has to be extremely shorter by land in order to be economic overseas. Uh, over over the sea, so I think there's been a lot of unrealistic uh, ideas put forward, even including especially by the previous government about the uh, Central Asian Roundabout, uh, as former President Gandhi called it. And uh, yes, there are opportunities. I would argue, especially for intra-regional rather than long-distance trade, there are major opportunities for energy transit with projects for both gas and electricity. Uh, transmission from Central to South Asia actually in the works and, and uh, rather developed in many ways, especially the electricity transmission. Uh, these now run into further bottlenecks because of the Taliban's lack of financial relations. So there is, uh, there is potential, but I would just want to flag that two of the most important areas of potential are the most sensitive probably. One is water, uh, better utilization of Afghanistan's water resources which flow into neighboring countries and immediately get a reaction from neighboring countries. And of course, the other one, which has always been a, a, the, a major coping mechanism for Afghanistan have been people movements and uh, uh, labor migration and remittances back into the country, which basically saved the country from uh, large scale death during the several big conflict in the 80s and 90s. So there is potential. But once you get into specific, it's tricky. And there are some ideas that are just so unrealistic and, uh, and uh, expensive and ineffective, like a, a railway from Uzbekistan to, to uh, Pakistan. But, but, so those need to be shot down and some more modest uh, uh, efforts made. I think uh, the Taliban attitude toward trade and transport is one of their better aspects. And, and there can probably be further development there. Reserves is a complicated issue, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. Uh, first point that I'll just reiterate that it was not the reserves freezing that uh, caused the economic shock. It was the sudden cutoff of aid. Now, the reserves freezing further worsened the atmosphere and basically uh, took, you know, knocked the leg out from under the Afghan Central Bank. Uh, it's a complicated issue. Uh, the Biden administration in February. And, and this has been widely reported by, including by myself, uh, had to navigate uh, some, some difficult choices. Uh, and certainly the idea that somehow just returning all the reserves to the Afghan Central Bank was realistic was not possible in the U.S. because there were already court judgments uh, to which the uh, reserves were subject. So 
the, the administration went with uh, uh, trying to preserve half of them for the benefit of the Afghan people, but not the Taliban, and leaving the other half to be uh, litigated over among some 9-11 uh, uh, victims, families, and their lawyers. Uh, the most recent development is a recommendation by the courts, so not yet final in New York, that uh, actually none of the reserves should go to 9-11 uh, plaintiffs and their lawyers. And uh, as I've written in several publications, that certainly uh, makes sense. So, but then the, the issue then is how to, to make use of these reserves without directly supporting the Taliban to improve Afghanistan's uh, central banking. This is not humanitarian. Uh, the UN is, is, has made it clear that they certainly don't want to touch this money. It's Afghanistan central bank reserves. It's properly used for economic management, balance of payments adjustment, supporting the banking system, and basically many of the same things that the Fed in the US or another central bank would use it for. Um, really on that, I'd be happy if, if people have questions to respond uh, bilaterally or separately after the uh, event, but please contact me by email since uh, I, I'm not very active on Twitter. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. And, and I want to underscore your, your last point, distinguishing between function of central bank reserves, which are which are economic stabilization uh, tools versus, let's say, a treasury's account uh, from revenue from taxes, which is to be spent directly on services. And I think that's a, an important but complex distinction. Let's go for another 15 minutes. We have several questions that have not been addressed yet. Thanks, everyone, for staying with us, those that, that can. Uh, I want to turn to a, a comment by Allison Spencer, who from the World Bazaar Council of USA, who notes that there are multiple atrocities being committed specifically against Hazara and Shia populations in Afghanistan. Uh, and that raises you know, a broader question as well about the, the treatment of different minority groups, whether it's, whether it's Shia, whether it's other ethnic groups. You know, Belkis, let me turn to you who's been tracking this quite closely, you know, what can be done, if anything, to put the Taliban on notice, to increase pressure on them, to provide equal rights? But I also wonder if I can add, you know, what is lost through uh, a policy of a very exclusive Pashtun rule that Andrew Watkins described? Thank you. Very good questions. I'm going to answer the second question first, if that's okay. And that goes to the Taliban's uh, exclusion of uh, every person, talent, view, and discipline that's not aligned with theirs. Uh, it seems that um, Taliban lack the capacity and tolerance to include uh, diverse views, discipline, gender, and so on in the country's uh, socio-political as well as other affairs. Um, the Afghanistan's beauty is in its diversity, be that uh, ethnicity, religion, language, um, um, and even the landscape, the nature is very different from one corner of the country to another. Uh, they have been trying to impose their narrow ideology which they sometimes claim is based on Islam, and if it, it, if that doesn't suit uh, the audience, then they claim that it's based on Afghan culture and traditions. So uh, I think pretending to be governing, which is actually not governing, ruling a country with uh, of a country of forty plus 
million uh, population without a constitution is uh, alarming. It should be alarming uh, to many uh, policymakers and otherwise in the world. Uh, they have marginalized uh, more than 50% of the population, that being women. They have also marginalized ethnic religious groups who uh, they who don't do and think uh, like Taliban. And that's a loss uh, for the country, for economy, um, and so on. On the issue of uh, atrocities, uh, I'm of the view that the international community uh, as a whole, as well as uh, uh, individual countries who have some relationship with the Taliban and have some interest in Afghanistan, uh, have leverage with the Taliban and they should be utilizing that leverage. One, uh, clearly on atrocities, um, I would like to bring the issue of travel ban on Taliban, the current travel ban against the Taliban that was enacted uh, by a UN Security Council resolution, uh, Resolution 1988, uh, was based on Taliban's links and support of uh, terrorism and terrorist activities. I believe that there should be other layers and levels of sanction based on um, Taliban's violation of human rights. Um, I think the more uh, Taliban need to feel that what they are doing is wrong and that feeling cannot be done just by issuing um, statements by international community. There has to be more than that done by the international community. We have moral obligation toward uh, the people of a country that has sacrificed so much for the security of the world. Afghans have given their lives, they have given everything they have had in the war against terror. And now it's up to us and the international community to stand with the people who are basically hostage in their own country by a group uh, who does not know how to govern the country. So basically you have mullahs running the country. Take a look at the Taliban's cabinet. Everyone, every other person is either a mullah or comes from a madrasa background. A country requires, a government requires the talents, discipline, qualification of many, many more um, backgrounds than just uh, mullahs who have no experience in running the country. I would also like to mention, as someone coming from a legal background myself, that the justice sector in Afghanistan is now paralyzed because of the Taliban's decisions to marginalize all those judges and lawyers and prosecutors who have been trained in legal um, practice and legal education. I'll stop here. Thank you. Thanks for that. We just got a question in uh, asking about the recent Twitter uh, for the, the Afghan team. Uh, and, you know, the question is, is this is this genuine point of national unity or, or maybe sports washing by the Taliban? Uh, are there unifying features there that that could be positive? 
to you about this? Oh, to me, yes. I hope so. I hope so. I think cricket is uh, one of the sports that many Afghans love inside and outside of Afghanistan, and they follow closely. But uh, that that can definitely be a unifying tool or factor if the Taliban allows for uh, Afghans to enjoy sports, and that includes both men and women, Pashtun, Tajik, Hazara, Uzbek, and any Afghan who identifies themselves as Afghan should find a place, safety, and an environment that they can express themselves, they can play sports. Um, the fact that uh, Afghans are not playing, uh, those incredible uh, cricket players are um, expressing very strongly in, st- in strong terms their opposition to Taliban's ideology is a fact that they are not safe in the country and that they do not have the opportunity to practice and train the new Afghan generation of um, to play cricket better than them. So I would like uh, for Taliban to use that as a, as a unifying uh, sport and uh, allow others. Cricket is a sport that is inclusive. <laughs> Uh, so if that can be a lesson to the Taliban, that once they are inclusive, once they respect each other, there are rules that are respected in cricket and other sports, then things can go very well, just like it did for Afghan cricket players uh, winning the match, by the way, which I congratulate them and all Afghan people who love cricket. Thank you. Great, thanks. Andrew, do you want to come in? You made it several points about the, uh, the exclusive nature of Taliban rule. Do you want to come in on, on this issue of, of cultural, political, ethnic diversity? Yeah, thank you, Scott. Um, and I mean, even, even the question about cricket, I think, gets at some of the earlier points raised. Uh, the fact is, when the national cricket team and other sporting events were taking place in the first months after the Taliban took over, uh, it reveals the extent to which the Taliban had not considered the million different ramifications of what it means to run the modern state of Afghanistan, however they want it to look. The Taliban were engaged in internal debates as matches were taking place over whether or not the cricket team should be punished for flying the flag of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. Indeed, debates on the flag seemed to be ongoing in the Taliban in their first days before raising the flag of the Islamic Emirate, uh, which they've used uh, for decades all across Kabul and elsewhere around the country. Um, It's an interesting window into how little uh, preparation or planning the Taliban put into the idea of becoming the state. on the question about uh, the, the mistreatment of Hazaras and I think more broadly, the marginalization of ethnic communities, and, and to Belkis's point, anyone who is not affiliated with the Taliban, I, I want to make sure that we are examining the full picture of interactions going on in Afghanistan without marginalizing the mistreatment, the abuses, and in some cases, the documented uh, crimes and, and, and very severe human rights violations. What I mean by this is we can look at an episode like uh, the recent conflict and displacement in Bokhav district of Saripol province, where one of the Taliban's only Hazara commanders in their entire organization 
recently uh, left the movement in protest. Um, he said in part because of Ben's treatment of the Hazara community. But what we did not see was the rest of the Hazara community across the central highlands of Afghanistan rise up in a broader organized resistance around this commander, Mehdi Mujahid. And in fact, when you speak to people who are engaging with the Taliban in Kabul and around the country, what we're hearing is a very complicated picture where the Hazaras are one of the only ethnic communities in the country that do not have a large or recognized group that has declared a violent anti-Taliban resistance. Instead, there is a new generation of Hazara leaders in communities uh, across the Hazarajat that are engaging with the Taliban. I, I don't say that's because the Taliban are politically legitimate or that this reflects their attitudes, but if anything, if, if nothing else, it's an attitude of survivalism and the need to grapple with the reality that the Taliban are the power uh, across so much of the country. So what you have, I think, are the beginning phases of, of something fascinating in Afghan politics. It's happening alongside abuses and marginalization and mistreatment, but it's also epic and it's shaking the foundations of Afghan politics all the way back to the 1970s and 80s. And that is a, genera a generation of Afghan leaders who used to draw their political legitimacy from their fighting as Mujahideen against the Soviets and the civil war, the power they accumulated in the Republic. Many of them are now in exile and it's not them negotiating community Taliban relations. It's new names, it's new faces. We don't know what that's going to look like yet, but I think we have to think about how that's taking place every day. Thank you. Thanks, that's a really interesting point about engagement within Afghanistan, even amongst groups that, that suffer under them and, and oppose them. And I wanna ask a, a final question to the panel here, prompted by one of the comments that we've received uh, online, which is about whether Afghanistan should have some kind of representation at the UN. Of course, Afghanistan is, is not recognized, the Taliban, I should say the Taliban government is not recognized by any country uh, and, and the seat of the UN, they're not allowed to, to take that. But I, I want to expand on that to, to ask about engagement more generally by the international community, particularly by the US. You know, there are competing schools of thought on this, one leading, ranging from, look, the Taliban are not doing anything that we want, they're, they're evil and you shouldn't talk to them. Uh, and of course, US embassy, the US doesn't have an embassy in Afghanistan. And then the other says, well, look, uh, you have to talk to your, your adversaries in order to, to change their behavior. So on this broad question of how to engage, whether to engage, and ultimately whether to recognize the reality of Taliban rule by, by saying that they're the government, uh, I want to turn to Kate first and, and see how do you assess the, the, the strategy uh, that one might take toward engagement and recognition. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Um... It's a it's a very um, delicate balancing act, um, I, I suppose, and, and um, strong feelings on you know on both sides. Is there are good arguments for uh, for not engaging and for engaging? But I think you have to look at the um, you know what are the alternatives. If we do not engage, then um, then it's it's isolation um, or uh, or active opposition, um, as a Rand report recently um, laid out very well and. Um, you know, considering our experience with other authoritarian regimes around the world, um, 
I, I don't think that we can see a better prospect for advancing our interests by isolating or actively opposing the Taliban. Um, treating them like a, a Cuba, Korea, Iran um, does not seem to hold out much prospect of of you know of any of moving the needle at all, uh, and so that leaves you with engagement, and that and that's likely why you know this seems to be the the policy path that the U.S. administration, that the U.S. government is currently on. Um, but it, again, it's a delicate dance because any engagement, you know, any any assistance, even humanitarian, is um, is kind of taking care of part of the Taliban's problems for them, right, and it's. It's inevitably, you know, engagement is inevitably um, kind of a quiet uh, or, or some signal of, of legitimacy. So, um, so we have to ask, but then we have to ask ourselves: uh, Are we willing to pay that cost for the potential of, you know, alleviating the suffering of 40 million people? And um, and I, I'll be the first to admit that U.S. policy historically has not been driven by, you know, moral obligations. But I, I think. We should be making that argument. We have a moral obligation to the Afghan people, and Belkis was very eloquent on that. Um, and, and therefore, um, to take a long, we have to take a longer view of the country. And um, it's still, as I mentioned before, we still have we still have national self interests at play there in terms of the terrorism threat, regional stability, um, as a as a potential breeding ground for violent extremism, um, but we should also be holding our, our moral um, interests at and the well-being of, of 40 million people. Um, so, you know, yes, I think we should continue to look for ways to engage and uh, that even in, might include, you know, eventually reopening some U.S. presence in Kabul because that enables us to have eyes and ears on the ground and to better understand, you know, you know, to better understand the environment in which we're operating. And that it will be critical. Um, thank you. Back to you, Scott. Yeah, thanks. Can I just turn to the U.S. Fundyar? You know, I mentioned that no country has recognized the Taliban as the government so far. And this is different from the 90s when I believe it was Pakistan, UAE, and Saudi Arabia that did. Uh, just on Pakistan, if not the region more broadly, you know, they sanction, they provide sanctuary uh, for the Taliban, supported them quite actively. Why have they not even recognized the Taliban? My read is that initially uh, the Pakistani thinking was that uh, the Russians, the Chinese, maybe um, a few other countries, perhaps including Qatar, would lead on the recognition question and Pakistan would, would tag, tag along uh, uh, that you know, Pakistan didn't want to repeat the 1990s be one of the, a handful of countries that it recognized. Um, that was, again, the initial thinking. Since then, a lot has happened, a lot of water under the bridge. There are new issues. Uh, it appears that back in March, they were uh, trying to rally the region. Uh, but of course, the Taliban uh, decided to renew uh, to, you know, the ban on, on secondary schools uh, for girls. And uh, that was a big setback. Uh, for most external actors. Uh, and since then, Pakistan has taken a backseat and all of these other problems uh, that exist in the, in the bilateral relationship, I think they're really hindering uh, any meaningful move towards uh, recognition. Thanks. And, and let me just give the last word to, to Belkis and return the issue to, to Afghanistan. Of course, you know, we've talked about the, the limited influence that the U.S. has 
the region has a, a, a somewhat constrained attitude toward intervening into what they would call internal affairs. Uh, ultimately, it's the Afghan people that are that are suffering the most from Taliban rule. You know, what's your sense of civil society at this point? Uh, what role can ordinary Afghans play in this new Afghanistan under Taliban rule? Uh, how can Afghans fight for their own rights? And then how can we support them? Uh, thank you. Uh, so let's go to civil society. Uh, for those following uh, developments in Afghanistan and having worked in Afghanistan, they know that civil society has played a very important role in the country providing uh, services, life-saving services and other to Afghan men, women and children. The vast majority of the civil society organizations, particularly those run by women, are not allowed by the Taliban to operate. So the issue is twofold. One is the Taliban's strange rules and policies uh, regarding uh, civil society organizations and those run by women. And second, uh, donors' uh, lack of proactive decisions to uh, provide funding to civil society groups in Afghanistan. Uh, from my conversation with uh, Afghans both inside and outside of Afghanistan, they tell me that Afghans are willing to support each other, uh, but at the same time, they need uh, financial support, financial support to first feed their own families and second, provide very important services to other men and women. One that area is the issue of psychosocial counseling that I would like to uh, bring in. Uh, that's an issue dear to my heart. Um, given the situation in Afghanistan, the high level of um, uh, depression, chronic depression, uh, the, surface, the suffocating uh, living environment in Afghanistan has caused a high level of um, anxiety and mental, um, um, mental issues in Afghanistan that requires immediate attention. Uh, which I hope that uh, the international community will pay attention. There are trained uh, psychosocial counselors inside of inside Afghanistan, and they're willing to uh, carry on the work as long as uh, they have the financial resources to do so. That also goes on to education. It goes on to health and other um, services that uh, a human being in the 21st century uh, requires in order to uh, carry on their life. So what is needed here is uh, for the Taliban, if they truly are there to serve Afghan people, which they have to uh, prove um, and walk the talk, is to uh, provide the opportunity for civil society to operate free from intimidation and fear of be persecution because of the work they do, allow for the media, independent media, to report on people's needs and concerns so um, that uh, everyone knows what's going on in the country and in particular communities. Um, and there is also this thing called off-budget and on-budget without supporting the Taliban's um, 
so-called government, there are many ways that the international community and donor agencies can still help Afghans, particularly when it comes to humanitarian aid. Thank you. Thanks so much, Belkis, and, and thanks everyone for the panelists for joining us and, and sharing your insights. Thanks very much to the audience for tuning in. For those that joined in the middle of the conversation, I noted that this will be recorded in its entirety as a podcast that will be available on the USIP.org website as an episode of the USIP events podcast that should be up tomorrow. So please come back and visit that if you did not hear the entire conversation. And please also forward this, tweet this to those who might have missed it but would be interested. They can see the event or hear the event in its entirety on the USIP website. Thanks, everyone, for joining, and we'll hope for a better year in Afghanistan in the coming year. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.